GrowCFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using GrowCFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the GrowCFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got one of our mentoring team, Susanna Serrano-Davy, back with me. And we're going to talk about a topic that we started to touch on last time we, we did a podcast together. And we said we'd come back and revisit it for a full episode. And that's the, the topic of building consensus. So, Susanna, welcome back. Thank you, Kevin. Hello. So, building consensus, Susanna. And what's that all about? To me, building consensus is about working towards getting people on board before you put yourself in a position that you get too much, um, what would be, like too much resistance. So, for instance, just to give you an example, and this may ring some bells with people that may be listening to this podcast. Who has never worked perhaps for a week or quite a long time to build a presentation where you present to stakeholders and you want to put in that presentation or in that meeting um, a proposal, right? So you work really hard to put together your presentation. You, you dress up for the day. You go into that meeting. You check your slides and you start presenting. And halfway through the meeting, people start to ask really difficult questions to effectively become quite, what you could say, obtuse. Um, And it's that feeling of uh, the whole meeting derailing in a way, perhaps, because you just haven't done your homework. And Mm -hmm. interestingly enough, for me, I think it took me a long time to realise that Actually, these meetings sometimes are a pure formality. They're the end of a process rather than the beginning of a process. Yes. And uh, you, we, we often look at people in the workplace, especially when you're, when you're younger, and we say, God, he or she, they're really good at the office politics or they're smooth operators. And over time, I've come to realize that those people are really good at building consensus with the right people at the right Mm -hmm. time. So building a smooth operator, being a smooth operator, Suzanne, that's an interesting phrase. What, what, what makes a smooth operator? I think someone who's got the emotional intelligence to know who they need to get on board uh, rather than uh, someone that perhaps has the best arguments because um, I think sometimes in organisations there are a lot more people that may have something to say than we think about. Mm, okay. um, and also, if, if, if you go up about um, developing a plan, like we talked about last time, deploying a, a, a department plan, if you go about just doing too much of your homework in isolation, you're going to miss a lot of information that is relevant along the way, which is why then you may walk into a meeting and find a lot of resistance and people are really not that keen to help you or to say yes or whatever it is. Um, And I think that's my impression. That's what I think I have learned. Of course, different people may, may disagree with this, 
But I think for important things, it's good to just almost like be that little squirrel in the background, uh, putting yeah. that away uh, yeah. to find a, a, a metaphor so that when the right time comes, you, you, you've got that to. Yeah. So, and so to I me, can, that's what the smooth operator is all about. Yeah. I can see exactly where you're coming from here. You, you, you're spending all your time thinking through what it is you want to do, and you're doing it all from your own point of view. Mm -hmm. You're putting your slides together. They're a nicely polished pack. It tells basically the argument for what the problem is, what the alternative solutions are. Here's what we're going to do. Here's why we've got to do it. Here's when we're going to do it. And all of it is if you're not doing that smooth operator piece is all coming from your point of view. Yeah, absolutely. So of course you're, and people are naturally resistant to change. So you go into a meeting and you give those proposals to somebody, even, even if it's something that they, they basically like, they're going to naturally look for the problems and look for why we shouldn't do it. Absolutely. And also, I, I think people hate surprises. Yes. And especially if they are sort of faced um, with that scenario in public. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, so people that may be um, happy to help you normally, just because you prompt them, you put them in that awkward situation of there and then having to express an opinion or agree or disagree, you're in a way putting them in a, in a position that doesn't help you. Yep. So by eliminating that element, as well as bringing their own perspective into your, your map, which is what you were alluding to, by avoiding surprises, especially in public, then you're just building a stronger um, opportunity, I think, for for getting that across the line, whatever it is that you want to get across the line. May that be a pay rise that you want to ask for. May that be hiring a new person in your team or changing a system. Or what? I think that the, the subject matter actually doesn't matter. What's important is to 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 just uh, as you after just said, consider consider the other. What else? Who are the? Who are the? You know, who else is being affected by this? Uh, bringing their perspective on board, and also make sure that you you talk to the right ear at the right time. So I I like to build break this down this process of building consensus or being a smooth operator because I do think we can learn. I think some people are naturally good at this and they just don't think about it. They do it, and if you ask them how did you do that, they just wouldn't know how to answer perhaps. But I. I like to think through my little methods. Uh, so for me, you've got four key steps, and I think we've talked about this in a number of pro in a number of podcasts now. The importance of understanding your stakeholder landscape, and when you're thinking about uh, putting together a proposal for whatever it is, understanding who are going to be the people that are affected by this, and also uh, also who are who has a, a voice. Because sometimes, so for instance, imagine you want to um, build a case to, I don't know, to, I'll, I'll give you a specific example of uh, when I, I did this, I think, quite well, uh, quite late in my career, but I thought, finally, I've got the hang of this. I was trying to implement a, a one PNL model in a new organization that I've joined us as a CFO. So each of the departments obviously had had their own metrics. 
and the, the CEO was very attached to the way they did things. And I wanted to put a new proposal together. So I, I wrote it all up and um, I built the deck, what was the initial deck. And then I literally went person by person, one by one of the heads of the department and saying, look, I'm thinking about making some suggestions uh, about the way we measure performance and we report monthly so that each of them had the opportunity to not only tell me how they felt about what affected them, but also give me really insightful information of how they thought the CEO would see that. And, and I think having that landscape of who, are, who, who is affected and also who has influence over the people that ultimately have the, the power to decide. So in this instance, it wasn't just about convincing my boss, but also about convincing the people that may have something to say to him about what that was proposing i don't know if that makes sense kevin if makes I'm a lot of sense makes a lot of sense yes. so it, i think your stakeholder map and identifying who do you need to talk to if you just open that lens a little bit wider that may appear you will find people in that map that may not be obvious but actually have um, may have something to say about what it is that you want to do so they're interesting to put on your map and then perhaps have a conversation. And of course, it will vary when you're going to talk to them. Some people, you might just have a quick conversation over the coffee machine. And some people, you may want to show them your draft presentation and say, this is what I've prepared. What do you think? So obviously, it's not that you're going to spend like a politician campaigning. You're not going to go around the office spending two hours with everyone. Of course not. But you need to do different levels of uh, engagement. And, and this is what building consensus, I think, is about with different stakeholders. And I leave the, hard, the, the hardest one till the end. Yeah. But I think identifying the wider stakeholders is an interesting one because you, you're going into the, the senior management team with this proposal, for example. Mm-hmm. Then other people on the senior management team, you probably don't just want to be talking to them because they'll see a proposal coming up and they'll think, well, what, what's this all about? And they're possibly going off and talking to their number twos. Yeah. And getting advice from them about what they think and what impact it's going to have on different parts of their department mm-hmm. and the organisation. So, yeah, you've definitely got to think broader than just the folk in the meeting. I agree. I agree. Mm. And that there are always people around an organization who who got a voice that is probably louder than their their apparent rank in the organization would indicate. And I don't know, with, with my change management hat on, they're always the people that you'd you'd want to get on your side and be an ambassador for whatever you're doing, because they bring the crowd with them. I agree. Absolutely. Yes. So it's not always obvious who mm. people with the influence are. Yeah. And I think it, it helps to just think, right, if, if I don't know, it, it obviously depends on the specific case. So if, when you're speaking about this in a, in a generic way, it may be hard to, to pinpoint. Um, but even, you know, it could be, as you say, the number two, it could be um, someone in their department that can give you data from their side that supports your case. It could be, um, 
yeah, definitely. It's not as obvious as, as one might think from the beginning. And sometimes people that are in the sidelines, it could in, in terms of, I don't know, someone in a in a supporting role in another department. I mean, we all know in our own organizations, or not, or we should know, who who are, as you say, that those people that really have a a solid voice that that has an influence on the key stakeholders. And uh, that might even, you know, the PA, I had, a, I had a boss that the PA was quite an important stakeholder, actually. Yeah. Uh, and uh, PAs sometimes so, really can be powerful people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's an example of perhaps someone you wouldn't necessarily think about. Um, but no, in, in certain cases, even the PA can be quite important or, mm. or someone in another in another department that may not be obviously involved, but they've got a lot to say or they, 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 they listen to, I guess. Yes, exactly. So work out who those key people are is definitely mm-hmm. number one. Yeah. We're talking about how to engage them. We've seen that, well, some people you might engage in a lot of detail, others less so. Yep. There's the difference shown in the whole set of slides or have a chat over the coffee machine. What, one thing that I've found, Susanna, is as you're talking to the other person about some sort of proposal, if you can hit on the kind of what's in it for them, part of this mm-hmm. so that they see they're going to get something out of it um initial resistance might swing more easily towards being in favor um, definitely i remember we were doing i was working on a um, project sorting out the finances on um coal-fired power station i was working with the management team and we were working about, about how to, we, we needed to ch- change the budgeting system quite radically. And we were chatting about this and there was, a, there was a lot of pressure because when we needed to do the budget, and this was going to be a load more extra work, was right in the middle of the annual maintenance shutdown for the power stations. They were all going to be on outage while we were trying to do the budget, which meant that every maintenance manager would be doing probably double the workload that he had at any other time. Once the head of maintenance realized that he was actually going to get better budgetary control in the future with his guys, more, more flexibility, more, more of a hands-on feeling, and it was going to solve some of the problems that he had, suddenly his resistance to doing this extra piece of work when all his guys were really going to be busy started to go away. So, yeah, it's going to be tough, which was his big objection. Haven't got time to do this. Sorry, Kevin, you must be joking. Not when we're all shut down. We're all doing it. We're effectively taking the power station to bits and putting it back together again. Um, Suddenly, yeah, providing we manage this properly and you can give us lots of help and so on. And the conversation then became rather than, no, you can't do it. The conversation became, how can we work with you to make this less painful than it would otherwise be. I agree. And I think in that step of finding something good, so finding what's in it for them, I think inevitably you're going to also go through a process of improving your own initial intention for your own benefit. Because there may be that you you start with a plan to do uh, things in a certain way 
And through these conversations, whether that may be because new information come to light or, as you say, because this is something that you could tweak in your proposal to help them uh, be more, um, more attractive for them and also to help you get it to, to a good uh, position. I think you lend that, adapting your proposal, that proposal, I think, should inevitably or could inevitably change for the better for, for everyone. Yeah. Because it's you it's never these things are not there is only there isn't only one way to achieve an outcome. There are many ways to achieve an outcome. Yeah. And if you're open to that, then I think it's going to be easier to achieve and also people are going to be more supportive. Because wow. I think sometimes when we start from, with an idea, or I certainly was guilty of that earlier on in my career. I, I tended to be quite a perfectionist and I wanted things my own way because I believed that was the right thing to do. And over time, I learned that it's better sometimes to implement something that is a bit of a compromise, but works yes. <laughs> in general for everyone than to implement something that might be a bit better. And now that, but it, it's just too painful for the organization or it's just uh, too laborious or it just doesn't work for all. So I think yeah. for me, um, no, I, will, I don't want to use the word bodge, but it's better to you to have a little bodge that works for everyone than have something that is fantastic that actually half the organization ignores and or when you leave the role, breaks down again. Because ultimately, I think we want to leave behind things that work. When we're in a role, absolutely, we want to leave things that are sustainable over time and they don't depend on us being always there to, to make sure they continue happening. Yeah, and I, I'd look at it as I, I'd rather have a pragmatic success than a perfect failure. Uh, Kevin, you are so much more eloquent than me explaining this. <laughs> I've got to make a note of that. Pragmatic success. <laughs> Rather than what was the eloquent failure. Yes, I really yeah, love that. And I, I think that is really the third point here, Susanna. We said, no, go find out who you need to engage with. And it might not be the obvious people. Engage in the right way and adapt your proposals. Don't just do all this engagement in order to effectively ram through your original. Yeah, I agree. Adapt. And that's possibly a reason as well for working with some people that might not immediately strike you as, well, they're not going to be in the meeting, so why should I talk to them? Because... Actually, some of that ad adaptation that might make this easier to get through may well come from the number twos to the people that are in the meeting. They might be just that little bit closer to what really goes on to give you the, the heads up on how might we make this work. Mm -hmm. And of course, that will involve also your own team. Mm -hmm. I suppose yeah. it depends on the topic. It, it, it will um, involve not just yourself talking to other people to see what they think, but just ultimately it's about listening. Uh, what do people think about what you are thinking about? And I think people will tell as well as you're talking to them, whether you're just trying to ram it in or whether you're genuinely interested in what they have to say, because they will yes. tell, they will be able to tell that. And I think if you are genuinely open-minded within, within, your red lines because I think also it's important to understand um, and to be faithful to what what were your, your original objectives with your proposal what are the real 
red lines you don't want to cross because of course adapting is super important we're just saying that but equally you need to stay faithful to to what you're trying to achieve so finding that balance between adapting and at the same time achieving your objectives is is something to be i think considered and and making sure that you're not you're not being so flexible that actually you end up yeah you may get something over the line but ultimately you're not addressing the original risk that you were trying to address or you're not saving the money or whatever it is that you started off with that gets lost along the way yeah absolutely so we've we've consulted we've changed and adapted what's next I think what's next is that the nice, the nice part is uh, presenting your proposal, and and I think there's nothing more satisfying than walking into a meeting to present your um, concept, your your proposal that you have built consensus in, and you walk into that meeting and you know that the people are there, that, that the people that are there know what you're going to be talking about, know how that affects them and they it's just unless there's something new you're going to really enjoy that presentation and it's just almost like the icing on the cake is a formality it's not even um yeah you could skip it if you had to but it's quite nice to 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 present something when you know people are on board and they agree because they feel you, they understand also why you've got to that end position because they've had a voice. And so you go to the meeting, you enjoy it. And then after that, uh, there's a continued um, work around communicating to the rest of the organization and the rest of the stakeholders that will be affected by this that may not have been on your have something to say list, you know, may not have been the people that had the influence or people to to either help you or hinder you along the way, but there will still be other people that um, need to know. And I think sometimes we do, we, we let ourselves down on that part because we can we can engage the key stakeholders, but of course, are the people in the ground that are going to have to live that day in, day out. They're the ones that are going to have to do things differently. And if you forget about them, even if it's just from a communication perspective, you're gonna, you may get the, the proposal over the line in that meeting, but then you will continue to have challenges along the way. So I think that final communication piece, I think, is quite important. Mm, yeah. But I suppose you're, you're describing the, the ideal scenario there, that you go into the room, you present, and you've got no objections. The world often isn't quite like that, is it, Susanna? And no, of course not. You're, you're probably still, in most cases, going to get some elements of objection there. But I, I guess what you've done is you've taken away all the noise and probably reduced what you're going to talk about in the meeting to the two or three issues that actually matter. And the management team's going to have to talk about properly weigh up the pros and cons, and then make a decision. So you might get the smooth, smooth run, but, but the, the lesser case is at least you've got the clarity as to what needs to be talked about around this proposal. What does the team need to, to chuck around the meeting? And I think it will be a lot faster. I, have, I, have, I remember a, a meeting, and it wasn't actually me presenting. It was the, the marketing director that made a presentation and a proposal that he wanted to do 
um, some changes in his theme, some uh, you know new requirements, and he did it in like five ten minutes, and everyone just agreed. Didn't and I, I walked out of that of that meeting thinking, how did he do that? And and to me, this is what this is what we need to realize that yes. you don't you don't get through a proposal fast and with little with little um, noise or challenge or however you want to call it unless you have done some work outside of that room yes, so exactly. I agree that may, yes. <laughs> for me yes. it's a matter of speed and as well as um, you know getting people to even if you have a little bit of resistance you're going to have a lot less resistance it may yes. mean the difference between a difficult meeting that actually you in the end get through and just a no altogether yeah I know that I've gone into meetings like that and I've been beforehand sitting, putting the slides together, thinking about what I'm going to say. And I must admit that I've gone through a process almost of visualizing the room and look, taking a particular slide and thinking, oh, what's Joe going to say about this? How will he, mm. how will he react? What's, what's Sarah and HR going to say mm. about this? What's yeah. the effect on her team? What, what do I know from the past that's going to come back and, be commented on so i think that process as well particularly on the back of having talked to all of these individuals mm -hmm. it's it's then very useful just to be let's say mindful as and you prepare the presentation i agree through the i agree and as you said earlier we don't live in a perfect world uh, mm -hmm. and what we're talking about today here is a theor theoretical world but the real world yes. is not quite like that so to me, what's valuable as well is even if you don't go to the travel of speaking to everyone, even if you just don't have time or whatever it is, or you don't want to, at least you are aware that that is something that can, will happen. You know, if you don't bring people along the journey with you, inevitably you're going to find more barriers. And I think earlier on in your career, because probably more senior people that may be listening to us, to me, a lot of these topics that we talked about now are so obvious. But the Susanna of 15, 20 years ago didn't yes. have a clue. She had to learn yeah. it the wrong way with the frustrations. and the, the, yes. So I'm having this conversation with you, not on the basis that it's rocket science. It's, I'm having it on the basis that sometimes this, this is not the stuff that we talk about in business schools. This is not part of the syllabus at the ICAW. And actually, I think to, to do well in organizations, there is more uh, to consider, which is why I like to, to have these, these chats. Absolutely, absolutely. And 90% of management in general is bringing people along with what you want to do. And yeah, fine. We learn in business schools about the what you want to do we learn the theory the methodology the whatever between the behind the what. words very very rarely are you taught anything about the how to do it in practice yeah yeah and some of the stuff that i do as a consultant and one of the things that i've implemented many times is a balanced scorecard Lots and lots of theory you learn in business school about what a balanced scorecard is, lots of theory about what should be on it and why. But does anybody actually give you a methodology to say, well, how do you now work out what's on there? How do you work out with all the people that are going to be looking at these dashboards and so on? Why some of the information they want on there is not relevant or why 
their piece of information should be on there as well as the things you're thinking about. It's all about people, expectations, preconceptions. And do you say, Susanna, none of it gets taught in business school. <laughs> it gets taught for your accountancy exams, and it really is. Important. Important. Yeah? 20% or less is about the theory. 80% is about just dealing with people. Yeah, <laughs> I know. So, no, I'm, I really enjoy the conversation, Kevin. I think uh, clearly there is not a perfect way of doing it. So, to me, just being aware of these aspects of our delivery taking the time to just think a little bit about it and if possible, adapting our style accordingly, then you can't lose, can you? Exactly. Susanna, as always, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for being a guest again on the Grow CFO Show.